0: in for Fran while she's in filling in for Cindy this morning while she's not here. So. <laughs> yeah, Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> you know, last week we, we looked at verse 13, which uh, where he said, you know, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. And I I, I recall this week how I have had several conversations through the years with folks and they are so shocked and they say that that must be a mistranslation the way they wrote that. And Esau, I have hated one of the, (laughs) one of the most damaging teachings in the church today is this. Okay. Y'all ready? Jesus loves everybody. But the Bible does not teach that. We should not be surprised that God hated Esau. We should be surprised that he loved Jacob. (laughs) That's the part that should surprise us. Especially as we talked last week, when you look at the life, you know, both of these, Paul said, before they were ever born, before they had ever done anything good or bad, God said, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. When we look at the life that Jacob lived, it should surprise us that God says, Jacob, I have loved. Jacob is the one I have chosen. In verses 6 through 13, Paul makes the point that God has not failed. He says there in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Just because Israel failed to receive their Messiah, just because Israel failed to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe the gospel, because Israel had failed did not mean God had failed. Now, I take that and I look at our modern church today because many times uh, the, the world outside, especially, they'll look at us inside the church with our faults, with our sins, and they'll say, well, God must not be a real God, or these people wouldn't act like that. Aren't you glad that's not true? It's the same thing Paul dealt with. Paul says that true Israel has always come to God. Always. And they always will through His sovereign choice. God has not failed. But you know, ever since the fall... Man has tried to blame God for his actions. When God approached Adam and Eve after the fall, after they had had eaten of the fruit. Adam, what have you done? That woman you gave me. That's what he said. That woman you gave, he blamed God. When he went to Eve and said, Eve, what have you done? Well, the serpent he blamed, she passed the buck. You know, we still do that today, by the way. We still pass the buck. But ever since the fall, it's no different today. We ask God, here's what we do. We ask God to leave heaven, come to earth, and stand before the bar of our justice and give an account of himself according to our standards. And this is what I, why I have pointed out the last two weeks. And, and I want to point out again today, we need to remember what we've read My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. We need to stop looking at God like he's one of us. We need to stop bringing him down to our level. And so when we look at things, you know, and let me give you an example of this. Here a while back, I had a, a, a lady that goes to a church I used to pastor. She called me and she said, she said, Pastor, I have a question for you. She said, in heaven, it says that there'll be no more tears. That it'll be perfect bliss in the presence of God. She said, so does that mean that God is going to wipe away from our memory all knowledge of our loved ones in hell? And I said, no, he will not. You will know where they are. And she says, well, I don't understand. If I know that my brother or my dad or my mom or whatever or my child is going to spend an eternity in hell, then how can I spend eternity in heaven not crying and not this and that? And I said, because you're looking at it from your point of view instead of God's. And I said, in heaven, you will learn to look at it from God's point of view. And this is the thing that we have to learn now as we look through God's word. We, we need to stop bringing God down here where we are. You know, Job was one of those. Job doing everything he did. And Job finally came to a point where he said, okay, God, you owe me an explanation. And God said, no, I don't. <laughs> Just that simple. No, I don't. And, and Paul's going to show us that here. We're going get, to not get there until next week. But, you know... Uh, Let's go ahead and look at this. Let let me go down here to verse um, 20 or 20 in verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? If God chooses who will be saved and just lets the others go, then how's God going to hold them accountable for their sin? And and I love what Paul says in verse 20. He says, who are you, O man, to question God? You see, we we have to, the only way, I believe, the only way that you and I can truly understand this wonderful doctrine of election is when we begin to look at it, not from our point of view, but from God's. Because like we said last week, we want what's fair. And God says, are you sure? And God says, no, you don't want what's fair. So we have to look at things from God's point of view. But we, we ask God to come down here and stand before us and give an account of himself. We ask God questions like, uh, you know, if God is good, then why did he let my mother die? Or, you know, it's not my fault the life I live. If God had just put me in a more a more favorable position. If he let me be born in a more affluent family or, you know, one where my mother and my father loved me more. We always want to make excuses. And that's what. And so we look and Paul says there in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he says, he answers emphatically, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, whose decision is this? It's God's. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But these accusations about, you know, if God is good, why did this happen? Or why did my life turn out this way? We've all heard these. But in no area of theology is the demand that God justify himself to us more insistent than in this doctrine of election. We want God to explain, why did you save that one but not that one? And what we forget is a very simple thing. Okay, you ready? He doesn't owe me an explanation. He owes no one an explanation. You know why? He's God. God acts by the principle of election, whether we like it or understand it, is irrelevant. God acts as God acts because God is God. But, but let me ask you something. Is God, this is the question that Paul has anticipated so is there injustice with God? Is God not being, not being just by saving some and not others? And he says, by no means is this true. All are not equal. We live in a world, listen, how many of you as kids or have kids, if you have kids, I know you've heard this. Well, that's not fair. Of course, my favorite response to them has always been, life's not fair. <laughs> used to make my daughter so mad when I'd say that. But you know, that's true. Life is not fair. Everything's not equal. Some people are born wealthy families. Some are uh, born into poor families. Not all have equal opportunities. But is God just in allowing those situations? Again, <clears throat> I look at the sin in our world. And I wonder, why does God allow this to continue? But you see what I'm doing there? I'm looking at it from my point of view instead of God's. Hey, I'll tell you. One day, there were these men that were absolutely devastated. Because for three and a half years, they have followed this man who claimed to be the Messiah. And they began to believe him. They began to hang on every word he said. They went everywhere. They even said, we will die for you. And then there he was hanging on a cross. And as far as they were concerned, all was lost. We were wrong. How could God let this happen to someone who is the Messiah? But on this side of it, we see a different picture. You see, what they thought was was an unbelievable tragedy turned out to be one of the greatest things in the history of the universe. But you see what a point I'm making here. We look at things like that and we say, how can God let this happen? God must not be in control. God must not know what he's doing or God's not being fair. And God says, why don't you let me run the universe? And you do what I tell you to. (laughs) For this very reason. I'm God and you're not. Aren't you glad that I'm not God? That's a little too loud of an amen, but aren't you glad you're not God? God is just in everything he does. You know, as soon as Paul asks this question, is there injustice on God's part? He answers, as I said, with an emphatic denial. He says, by no means. Anybody have the King James? What's that say? How does Paul answer verse uh, 14? God forbid. That's a little stronger than by no means. Paul says, is God being unjust? Is there anything on God's part that he's doing wrong? And Paul says, God forbid, because you see, here's the thing. It puts us fallen human beings in our place. And Paul here is making the point, you see, he he has begun to talk about how God has selected those that he himself chose to be saved. And people are saying, wait a minute, that's not fair. I don't agree with that. And all of this, and Paul is saying, God doesn't care. You're not him. God has a plan. God knows what he's doing. Now, listen, I don't think Paul, I don't, I don't think that Paul is being very, being mean here. He's not saying, look, God doesn't care what you think. What he's saying is, God doesn't care what you think. (laughs) Because when he begins, you know what happens when God begins to care what I think? Yeah, we're all in trouble. There's a preacher. Well, there's a man out there who claims to be a preacher. I wish I could think of his name. I know you'd know who he was. Somebody sent me a video of him here a while back and he's up there preaching how God came to him and said, oh man, I was His name's right on the tip of my tongue and I can't say it. No, no, but he's along the same lines. He wanted everybody to buy him an airplane. No. Anyway, God came to him and said, now here's the situation What do you think I should do? Now, if God comes to me and asks me what to do, well, that's one thing. But you know what? That he ceases to be God. He ceases to... In a minute, I'll blurt out that name right in the middle of something else, but you'll know. But it puts us where we belong. You see, the very nature of sin is me wanting to be in God's place. But isn't that what the serpent said to Eve? For God knows the day you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. You know that lie still works today? Or it's still used today because it still works. Did God really say, God knows when you do this that, you see, he questioned God's word, then he twisted God's word. And he brought Eve, he said, Eve, you are just as good as God is. We want to be in the place of God. But as long as we're trying to be in God's place, we'll never be able to hear what God is saying to us. God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. Do you know why he knows the end from the beginning? Because he's the one that ordained it. He's the one that, that, that put it all. And, and Paul has already told us that, and, and especially in chapter uh, one of Ephesians, and we may go part of that next Sunday. Paul says, Before the foundation of the world, I was chosen. You were chosen if you were saved. Before the foundation of the world. God has decreed this. So God is saying to us uh, that, that we need to stop trying to put ourselves in his place. In order to learn, we must begin by confessing that God is God and that what he does is right and just. Do you think it was right for God to rain down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, now we look at that and say, oh, yeah, he should have done that. Look at the life they were living. But then we look at our own lives and say, well, compare. You know, it's always fascinated me that that, the people that will come and say, you know, when I stand before God and he points out and I can say, well, you know, at least I'm not as bad as so and so. We all do that. You know, you may stand before God and you may say, but God, at least I'm not as bad as Bobby Baker. And you're probably right. But I will tell you what God's going to say. God's going to say, well, you know, whether that's true or not, he's not the standard I'm judging you by. Christ is the giant standard we'll be judged by. So the whole point here being, we need to let God be God. And when we begin to do that, all of this will make sense. All of this will make sense. God is right and just in his actions, whether or not we agree or believe it. My belief, God's actions being right, are not based on whether I believe it or not. You understand that? You know, you ever heard that old saying, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it? That's a terrible saying. Because I want to tell you something, folks, if God said it, that settles it, whether I believe it or not. I have no part in that. So how are we to understand then God's justice? How do we look at God as he seems to just make somebody's life? You know, we see that we see lost people. Uh, You know, I remember when I was a house painter, I painted a house for a guy in Frisco. He was about 23 years old. He was an overnight millionaire. He invented, this was, he was one of the, the, the inventors of the flat screen TV. And in his house was the first time I'd ever seen one of those. And this guy, he had this huge house in Frisco. He had a four-car garage with, uh, he had my 66 Pontiac GTO in there. Wouldn't let me drive it. But he had more than you could ever think. And I remember one day I was in his house. I was working there. I was by myself. Nobody else was there. And I saw laying on the coffee table a book. How to overcome depression. And I thought, you know, this guy has more than most people will ever see in their entire life. But you know what he's learned? That he really has nothing. That doesn't help. And, but, but we look at that and say, okay, well, that's not fair that God would do that for somebody. While this guy over here, he works hard, he's got a family to take care of, and they struggle to pay, they live paycheck to paycheck. And we say, God, why do you allow that to happen? Why do you let this happen? And so we try to understand God's justice, and we start with the fact that God does elect some to salvation while passing others by. But how are we to think about his justice in doing so? And here's one of the areas where we get off track. We think everyone deserves to be saved. When actually, it's just the opposite. Go back with me to Romans chapter 3. Verses 10 through 12, Paul says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So here's where we get off track in trying to understand, you know, when we say, okay, God, why would you uh, save this person and allow that one to continue on in their life on their way to hell? And God says, look, you should not be surprised about those that I let go. You should be surprised about those that I save. Because all deserve condemnation we all deserve it we often ask why doesn't god save everyone when we should ask why does he save anyone shouldn't god show mercy to everyone i mean if he's going to show mercy to me shouldn't he show mercy to you shouldn't he show mercy to the guy down the street if God's going to show mercy to one, why not show mercy to all? Is it right for God to restrict his, his mercy to, to one group of people rather than showing mercy to all? A word that is much used in our world today and, and, and that Paul here is talking about is a word called justice. We demand justice. We want justice to be done. Folks, let me tell you, in this case, no, we don't. Because, again, justice sends everybody to hell. Fairness sends everybody to hell. But mercy, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You know, we talk a lot about grace and we talk a lot about mercy. You know, grace and mercy are kind of two, two sides of the same coin. We, we refer to grace as being God's Uh, undeserved favor. In other words, God giving us what we don't deserve. You know what mercy is? Mercy is when God does not give us what we do deserve. And Paul says that he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Justice gives us what we deserve, but mercy gives us what we need. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved. It's by grace you've been saved. It is only because of the goodness of God. The question asked for understanding, uh, when Paul says, when we ask, why doesn't God show mercy to everyone? This is a question that is asking for understanding rather than the previous question. And, you know, this is the second question that Paul has asked. You know, when he says... What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's the second question. The first question was back in verse six: Has the word of God failed? And you see these go together. If God's word has has God's word failed? Absolutely not. Paul says we all agree it has not failed. We don't understand how it's worked. We don't. We look at it and say, I don't get that. But does that mean God's word has failed? No, we look at this and Paul says, so is there injustice with God? And the only answer we can give is no, no, there is none. In Romans verse 15, in 9, 15, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God considers his display, the display of his attributes In her human history, to be worth the whole drama. Here is the key to understanding this whole thing, okay? You you may have heard this before. Salvation is not about you, it's about God. It's about displaying who God is, it's about God showing forth His glory. Why should it be necessary for God's name to be glorified? And I only know one answer, because it is right for his name to be glorified. Now, one of the things, uh, you know, we're not going to finish with this doctrine of election today. (laughs) I know we'll be in this next week, but let me tell you, let, let me jump ahead a little bit here and tell you something. God does not bring us kicking and screaming. He didn't come to me and say, I'm going to save you, and me say, no, I don't want to be saved. He said, you're going to be whether you like it or not. He doesn't do that. There are some who have that idea. I want to tell you what God does. God comes. You remember? You ever heard the, the, or seen the cartoons or heard a preacher talk about how salvation, a picture of salvation is someone out in the ocean, and they're drowning, and God throws them a, a, a lifesaver. That, that's not the picture at all. Did you know that? Let me tell you what the picture is. The picture is that we are lying at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is the deepest part of the ocean on earth. And we are dead. And there's nothing there but bones. And God reaches down and brings us up and gives us life. Gives us a new heart. You know what that new heart does? It desires God. And therefore, when God says, hey, if you'll believe the gospel, I'll save you. And I say, Lord, I want to believe. I want to be saved. So God changes. You know, Paul even talks about that. Look in verse... uh, Let's look down here a minute. Let me find it here. Well, my mind just... Here we go. Verse... 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, we have, why have you made me like this? Uh, has the potter no right to the clay? We're going to go over these verses again next week, by the way. So. <clears throat> what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power, he endured with much patience vessels prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for wrestles of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even whom he has called not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And indeed, and he says in Hosea, these are not my people. I will call my people and her who was not beloved. I will call beloved. And Paul says that it is all in the will and the purpose of God. And that's all we need to know. You see, we live the Christian life by faith. I live the Christian life not by understanding everything God does, not by questioning everything God does, but by simply having a childlike faith in what God does. I have things come into my life. And like Job, I want to say, God, what are you doing? Lord, why did you let this happen? And God is saying, do you trust me or not? Do you trust me or not? So God's name is... Needs to be glorified because he does what's right. Because this universe is run by God. It is not run by us. And what is right will in the end be done. God will be honored. And everyone, every knee will bow before him. And confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about one day Satan himself is going to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father? But you and I don't wait till that day. You and I bow the knee before him now because I want to tell you something, folks. Do you know why I'm saved? I don't know either. I honestly don't. Do you know why you're saved? I mean, I I would like to stand up here and say, I want to tell you something. I'm saved because I'm a good person. I'm saved because I'm a great preacher. I'm saved because I help people. But I can't say that. You know why? Because none of it's true. All I can do is fall on my knees and say, Thank you, God. Thank you. That's why Paul says, So that no man can boast. There's no boasting. We, we cannot look at others who, who God has passed by and say, oh, I must be better than you because I got saved and you didn't. And I want to tell you, if you ever do start saying that, God will show you right quick that that's not true. But God will be honored. We will bow before Him. He glorifies His name in displaying, Paul says, wrath towards sinners and the riches of his glory toward those who are being saved. It is his very justice, not his injustice, that causes him to operate in this fashion. <clears throat> if we object to this, if you object to God being able to choose whom he, would, whom, he, whom he would save and reject those whom he does not, it only shows that we're operating by a different and therefore a sinful standard. We... Must be careful. Don't bring God down here where we are. You see, he's trying to do the opposite. He's trying to exalt us to where he is. And it won't work the other way. The real wonder is not that God saves some and not others. But that God saves any of us. And that alone should bring us to the point where we're on our knees before God simply saying nothing but thank you. Thank you. We're about to come to the Lord's table this morning. You know, I I ask you to think about the fact that as we do this in remembrance of him, Partake of the, of the, the cracker and the, the grape juice. And we remember his body that was broken for us. And we remember his blood that was poured out for us. And we look and say, as I look at the cross, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I've done. Remember that you don't deserve what I've done. That it is only by my grace that you have been saved. So I ask you this morning, before we come to the table, let's take a moment. You know, Paul says that it's a dangerous thing to come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And I believe that one of the things that Paul's talking about there is we need to search our hearts. Do I have unconfessed sin in my life? Do I have unforgiveness in my life? Do I harbor bitterness towards someone? And, 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 you know, whatever it may be. One day, you know, Jesus told his disciples, he says, I'll not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in my kingdom. You know what that, that tells us? That one day you and I are going to sit down with the table with Jesus and partake of this. But we can do it. We we do it right here, right now. He's here with us. And he says, do this and remember me. Remember what I did for you. Remember not only what I have done, but what I continue to do. Not only did he die for us, but he also lives for us. So let's take a moment and just search your heart and make sure that your, your life and your heart is in a place where you're prepared to sit down with Christ and fellowship with him.